This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. All right, I want you to come again this morning with me, please, to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11 and 12 uh, is really a pivotal point in the book of Exodus. And indeed, it's a pivotal point uh, for the whole Hebrew nation. Not only then, uh, but has continued ever since. And in fact, Jewish people today look back at these two chapters and the events of them with great fondness. And they celebrate them after all these thousands of years. They still celebrate them uh, to this very day. Now, Moses, the man of God, that's who we've been talking about this past few Sundays, uh, has gone into Pharaoh again and again and again and has thundered, Thus saith the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. And, of course, we see that he hardened his neck and refused and again and again and again, nine different plagues sent by God as punishment uh, on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh. And so the confrontation in the natural would be between Moses and Pharaoh. But the real confrontation is between Almighty God and the gods of Egypt. And so that's what we have been looking at. Hebrews 11 said that Moses did this by faith. By faith, everything was by faith. But I would like also to think that it was not just all by faith, but by some courage. It took some courage to go in and to face the mighty Pharaoh, because Pharaoh's word uh, would be unchallenged. Well, dare anyone dissent from any order of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was treated as a god. In fact, he himself thought he was the incarnation of the sun god Ra. And so the whole nation was in thrall of Pharaoh. And so you can imagine when this shepherd from Midian came with his, uh, with his stick in his hand and thundered at Pharaoh to let, God said, let my people go. You can imagine how dismissive he would be. The God of the slaves, the God of my slaves, the God of the Hebrews, and you're telling me that he's ordering me. So you can see how dismissive he was and how arrogant and proud and how hard a heart he had. And so can you imagine just for a moment, can you imagine during the last world war, uh, whenever Nazism was at its height of power and whenever they were uh, railroading truckloads of Jews to the death camps in Poland and other places. Can you imagine if a Polish rabbi who went to the wolf's lair, as they called it, uh, which was in Poland, not short of the Prussian border, it was a highly fortified, disguised area where Hitler and his henchmen, where they were planning their attack against the East, and can you imagine a, a, a Polish rabbi going in there to Hitler, right into the wolf's lair, as they called it, and saying, thus saith the God of the Jews, let my people go. 
Thus saith the God of the Jews, shut down your concentration camps. Shut down your death camps. Stop trucking my people to their deaths in the ovens of Auschwitz, Birkenau. Can you imagine anybody doing that? Of course, they, nobody did do that because they'd be too frightened to do that. So you can see that this man Moses, apart from his faith, has courage to go in against that great dictator in that day and announce that. And so we come now to the last of the plagues, the tenth plague. And so far we see that Pharaoh has not moved one inch. Even though the nine plagues has just ruined the whole country. In fact, his courtiers said, do you not know that Egypt is ruined? But he didn't care. His proud, hard heart did not care about anyone, only himself. And so now comes chapter 11. It's a very short chapter, so let's just read. And I'll comment just initially, and then we'll read it through, and then I'm going to come back again. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people. And let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of gold and articles of silver. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. What a transformation in the minds and the thoughts of the Egyptians. At the start, all of them, like Pharaoh, would thought that this shepherd from Midian was just a joke. Who does he think he is? But after the nine plagues, and they saw the power of Moses' God, Jehovah, when they saw that, then they began to look at Moses in an entirely different light. And suddenly the respect for this man had grown, that they were honoring this man, and the Egyptians could do that. The only person who was not doing it was Pharaoh himself, because his heart was getting harder by the hour. And you see there how that they, they got gold and silver of the Egyptians, then this they would take with them whenever they would go on the great exodus. Then Moses said, verse 4, Then Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. In fact, in the next chapter, it was even the very firstborn of the prisoners in their dungeons. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Such was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast. But you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his hand. You'll see that refrain 
again and again, as we have done, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. The Lord just allowed that to continue to get harder and harder and harder. And it did get harder every single day. Now let me just, those few verses there that we've read, let me just go back over those again and point some things out to you. Because sometimes when we read these things, uh, we read them quickly and sometimes we miss. I know I do, so I'm sure you do too. So let's have a little look. Verse 4. Then Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. Now, we need to get the timing of this. Uh, because Moses here is speaking to Pharaoh, but we ended up in our last message at the end of chapter 10. And I'll just read it again. The end of chapter 10. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you, will, you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. And then you turn over to chapter 11, and suddenly Moses is talking to Pharaoh. So it's the timing of this. So obviously... Obviously, he had talked to Pharaoh about this that we have just read in chapter 11. He talked to him in the context of what he said in chapter 10. And after he had said that to Pharaoh, that's when Pharaoh says, get out. If I ever see your face again, I'll kill you. And Moses says, you'll never see my face again. You said right. Are you still with me? So it's a case of the timing in that. Also, he said, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Or let me just back a little bit. And at midnight, about midnight, I will go out into the midst uh, of Egypt. What midnight is he talking about? It's not the midnight when he spoke that to him. You see, you may think when Moses said this, that at that midnight, well, that's when the death angel passed over, but it wasn't. In fact, it was going to be five days before this would happen because Moses had to tell his people and had to prepare them for the Passover and had to instruct them what they had to do with the killing of the lamb, etc., etc. And that took a little bit of time. So when he says about midnight, it's not that midnight of that day he's speaking to Pharaoh. This would come a few days later. And Pharaoh didn't know when that midnight was going to come. So over the next few midnights, he's wondering, will this be the night? But he didn't know for sure. Are you still with me? Well, most of you are anyway. All right, so hang in there. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now, does that simply mean all the firstborn sons? Because it doesn't say that, does it? Or does it mean firstborn of all sons and daughters, either sons or daughters, whatever the case may be? It doesn't say that either. So we're a little bit unsure. We, we know that it was all the boys that Pharaohs had killed and slaughtered. All the newborn baby Hebrew boys. They'd been doing that for 80 years. So it may mean all the firstborn boys, but it doesn't say that. So we have to assume then that it was both boys and girls, whoever would be firstborn in whatever household. Then it says a little strange thing, verse 7, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know the Lord does make a difference between Egyptians 
and Israel. Now, in the Exodus, two million people, at least two million, are going to rise up as one, <coughs> excuse me, and they're going to start marching out of the land of Goshen to head to Kinnaland. So that would, that would cause quite a stirring. Now, I don't know if you've ever stayed in a country where there's a lot of dogs, <coughs> and I have. You're lying in your bed, <coughs> and your next-door neighbor dog starts to bark. And then the dog after that starts to bark. And then the dog across the street starts to bark. And then the dog down the road starts to bark. And before you know it, every dog and the whole town's barking. And you're thinking, what in the world's going on? It's just like an echo wall around the whole estate or the whole, whole town you're living in. Can you imagine when two million people rise up? Can you imagine all the dogs in Egypt nearby that would see that? Can you imagine them starting to bark and yelp and so forth? God says that won't happen. Not one dog will sharpen, actually. It says his tongue against you. And that would be a miracle. And it would show them when they were rising up, because this was a big thing for them to do, to walk away from Goshen, away from the clutches of Pharaoh, that God is with them. See, I'm telling you this in advance, he's saying, because look, not even a dog will bark or bite at you. And then it goes on down to say, at the end of verse 8, then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. <laughs> you rarely ever see Moses angry. In fact, in the 40 years that we read about him, uh, you know, there's, I, I can only count it three times. This is, this, is, this is one of the times when he's angry at Pharaoh. And he's angry at Pharaoh for good reason. Because he knows what's going to happen to that nation. And he knows what's going to happen to those children. He knows that they're all going to die. And he's angry that Pharaoh just doesn't care about his people at all, as most tyrants don't. And he's angry. He's angry at the fact that Pharaoh's heart is harder and harder. He's angry. And we know, <laughs> we know that whenever he was out in the wilderness, and whenever he was up in uh, Mount Sinai, and the people got restless, and they says, we don't know where this Moses is, they said to Aaron. We don't know where this Moses is. Make us an idol. Make us a god that we can worship that brought us out of Egypt. And you remember how Aaron, how he got their earrings and their gold, and, and he, he fashioned a, a golden calf, which would represent the, the Egyptian bull god, Apis. And they worshipped that, and they danced around that. And whenever Moses came down the mountain, he was hot with anger, the Bible says. He was hot with anger. His anger raged within him when he saw what was going on. And the other time that I can recall is, in the, again, when the people provoked him to anger, they complained again and again on the journey. And at one point, he took his staff, and he struck the rock when he should have spoken to it to get water out of the rock. And he says, must we fetch water from this rock? Well, it was nobody could bring water out of a rock, only God. But he was so angry, and that anger cost him a great deal. He couldn't take them into the land of Canaan because of that. So he was, he was the meekest man who ever lived, but there was those occasions when he just got angry. If you had two million people, two million complaining congregation, and you only got angry twice with them, I tell you, that would be some going, wouldn't it? But he did. 
But Pharaoh's heart, God says, was hard and he would not let them go. And then we come into chapter 12. And this is where the Passover is instituted. And now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So here is the pivotal point. This, what's going to happen, this Passover, was going to have such an effect that it was going to have to change their very calendar. Now, the Jews has two calendars, the civic calendar, but there's the religious calendar uh, relating to all of their feasts that they follow to this day. So here's going to be a, a massive change for them. This is going to be a new day. This is going to be a new start. Uh, this is going to be a cutoff point. This is going to be ending of something and the beginning of something. And in fact, it's so important, he says, you're going to have to change the date. Uh, a pastor friend of mine, uh, he was uh, traveling to America and he got to the immigration desk at the airport. And uh, you may or may not know that uh, Americans, they write uh, their birthday, it's the opposite to we do, because we put day, month, year. They put month, day, year. That's just the way that it is. And so he, knowing that, because he had went many times, in the little immigration form that then you had to fill in, he put what they would expect. He put month, day, year. So we would say put the the fifth of the thirteenth uh, of the fifth sixty-five. Just say, uh, whereas they would put the fifth of the thirteenth sixty-five. Be with me. So he he put it on his. He wrote what he knew they would expect, but on his passport, which is British, then it was the other way around. And so the official looked at it and he smiled and he says, "Oh, sir, I see you have two birthdays." And he says, "Amazingly, yes." Let me tell you why I have two birthdays. <laughs> and then the official wished he hadn't asked the question. <laughs> Everyone that's born again has got two birthdays. You've got your natural birthday, the day you were born. That's your birthday, the day you were born. But then when you were born again, you have a new birthday. That moment, that day, and you, maybe you're young and you can't remember what day it was, but that was your birthday, your new birthday. So you have two birthdays. And so this is so important because there's a, there's a change, and when you get saved, there was a change, there's a definite change from what you were to what God wants you to become. And there was that moment when that transaction took place and you got a new birthday. And so he said, it should... This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him take his neighbor, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs they shall eat it. 
Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, because that's the way the Egyptians would eat it. Now remember, they had been in Egypt now 400 years, and no doubt had adopted, adopted a lot of their dietary ways, and their ways of cooking, and their ways of eating, and all the rest of it. So he says, don't do that. This, you're, you're going to have a new life. Things is going to change from here on. But he says, he roasted in fire its head and its legs and its entrails. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. And what remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it. With a belt on your waist, with sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over, which obviously is where we get the term the Passover. I will pass over you, and the place shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. To this very day, Jewish people, particularly observant Jews, they will celebrate and hold as a memorial the feast of the Passover. It's that important to them. And actually, us as believers... Because this is a foretaste, this is a foreshadowing of the true Passover, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we every week memorialize that and the emblems on this table. All right? And we'll come to that table a little bit later. And then it goes on from verse 15 all the way down to verse 20, talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, you know that leaven is yeast, and... When you put it in bread, it will rise, it will ferment and rise, and that takes a little bit of time. So they weren't to do that as they were leaving because that would have taken time, and they're going to have to leave in a hurry, they're going to have to be ready, so they couldn't do that. But later on when they have a feast on leavened bread, leaven is a type of sin in the Old Testament, so there was to be no leaven when they had their feast of unleavened bread. In fact, it tells us when they get to their homes in Cana, then during that feast, which would last seven days, they were to sweep their whole house. If there's any leaven at all, it had to be swept out of the house. No sin to be there. So let's just move on from there in verse 24. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop uh, hyssop was just a, a little plant it was, that grew all over hyssop. You shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. <clears throat> and when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. And it shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you will keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? 
that you shall say, it is, the it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now, question. Why did the Hebrews in the land of Goshen, why had they to kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and metals to stop the death angel coming over? Why had they to do that? Why, why could the Lord, instead of coming over them, bypass them and just struck the Egyptians? Because after all, it was the Egyptians was causing all the, the slaughter of the Hebrew boys, all the damage, all the hurt, the pain. Why? I mean, were not the Hebrews innocent? So there's a question for you. But here's the thing. The death angel that would come over would be no respecter of persons. And the only thing the death angel would need to see would be the blood that was shed. <coughs> the innocent blood of an innocent animal for a guilty person. Now, you say, well, what were the Hebrews guilty of? Well, they could be guilty of a whole lot of things. They were there 400 years. In fact, probably intermarried within the Egyptians as well. Probably had taken up a lot of their idolatrous practices. In fact, we know whenever they, whenever they start to march through the wilderness, I just said to you that they wanted a god made, a golden calf made to worship. Where did they get that from? They got that from Egypt. So maybe some of them had already been doing that in Egypt. And so they weren't clean. And they certainly weren't perfect. And they certainly were sinners like everybody else. Okay, their sins maybe weren't as bad as the Egyptians. They weren't slaughtering people. But they still needed saved in spite of it because they're sinners. You see, some people will say, well, you know, I was born in a Christian country, but they're not saved. But I, but I went to Sunday school, but they're not saved. But, but I sung in the choir, but they're not saved. But you see, I, I, I go to church regularly, but they're not saved. They haven't trusted Christ as their Savior. They haven't believed that his blood was shed for them, and they applied that and appropriated that to save them. They haven't done that. And so they had to get a lamb. And they got it on the 10th day, and they were to keep it to the 14th day. And it had to be a lamb without blemish. See, all of this is foreshadowing our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And Christ was without blemish. Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Pilate's wife says, have nothing to do with that just man. The thief on the cross says, this man has done nothing amiss. Perfect in every way. So the little lamb had to be without blemish. They had to keep it four days. <coughs> now, can you imagine in that four days, you get attached to that little lamb because you know you're going to have to kill that little lamb. And every day you would look at that little lamb and you would be saying to yourself, in four days, little lamb, you're going to have to die to save me. You're going to have to die to save me. And maybe the little children would have it as a little pet. Maybe give it a little pet name. And they would have to know that little lamb is going to have to die to save us. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, had to die to save us. In verse 3, it says, a lamb. In verse 4, it was the lamb. Verse 5, it is your lamb. Jesus came as a lamb without spot or blemish. He was the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And he became your lamb at Calvary. This is why I love the Old Testament. This is why I love Exodus and Leviticus and all these books, because it's so full of Christ. When you go into Leviticus, I don't know when you're reading through your Bible, you say, oh, I get bored reading Leviticus. If you could see Christ in it, you would be bored. If you could see him in the tabernacle, in the materials, in the silver, in the gold, and in the colors. If you could see him in the pieces of furniture. If you could see him in the high priest garments. If you could see him in the sacrifices and in the feast. All of it speaks of Christ. Dozens of chapters about that. And most Christians read it and are bored reading it because they can't see Christ in it. But it's there for us to see. So he says, each one of you, take a lamb. Each household of you, take a lamb. Later on, by the way, a lamb had to die for an individual. A lamb had to die for that household. Later on, whenever they'd hold the feast of the Day of Atonement, then an innocent animal would have to be sacrificed by the high priest for the whole nation. A lamb for an individual, a lamb for a household, a lamb for a whole nation. But John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the what? Of the whole world. All of this is just types and shadows. Foretaste, foreshadowing Christ who was to come. And that's why I love it. Leviticus 17, 11, you don't need to turn to this, says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Remember when Adam and Eve in the garden fell? They rebelled against God, and they lost that special position between them and God. You remember how they covered their sin by fig leaves? But it didn't work, did it? So what did God do? He gave them coats of skin. So two animals, two innocent animals had to die to cover their sins. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. An innocent life had to die to cover a guilty life. And Jesus, the most innocent life that ever walked the face of this earth, had to die on that cross to forgive us our sins, and not just to cover them, but to wipe them out forever. Keep an eye on the clock. There's one famous preacher of old called it the old enemy. Here's the 10th plague, verse 29 of Hebrew, of uh, Exodus 12. And it came to pass at midnight, the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock, because they worshipped their god, they had animal gods. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine that every single household had death at midnight on that particular night? No wonder there's great weeping and wailing. The people be coming out onto the streets and crying loud, wailing. Does it seem fair that every household was a death? But you think during those eight decades of the slaughter of those Hebrew boys, little babies torn from their mother's arms and maybe slaughtered in front of their very eyes or thrown into the Nile to feed their god crocodiles. Can you imagine the wailing and the weeping of the Hebrew mothers for 18 years? See, whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. Whatever a nation sows, that it shall also reap. Because God just didn't deal with individuals, he deals with nations. He deals with empires in the Bible. And he's dealing with this nation and this pharaoh. You say, well, those Egyptians might be renaissance. Let me tell you, do you remember we read earlier in one of the studies earlier how that Pharaoh got his own people to spy all the Hebrew women to tell when their babies were born, to tell if it was a boy so they would be killed when the death squads would come? Not as innocent, perhaps, as you think. There was not a house where there was not one dead. Try to imagine midnight tonight. Try to imagine a death angel going over Ireland. And at midnight, every single household in the whole of Ireland, there was death in one night, in one hour. Could you imagine the weeping and the wailing and the turmoil? That'd be horrendous, wouldn't it? And it was. And he had so many opportunities to pull back from the brink, but he didn't. The scale of it is just beyond belief. Some of you may know that today is Holocaust Memorial Day. Did you know that? And it's a memorial to the day that the liberation of Auschwitz, Birkenau, the death camps in Poland when they were liberated. And during that period, six million men, women, and children, Jewish, were slaughtered, were shot, were hung, were worked to death, were gassed, were burned, were wiped out. Six million. Sometimes 15,000 a day. I'm going to ask you to do something for two reasons. Because this is literally, this day as I'm speaking, Holocaust Memorial Day. And it memorializes other deaths since then, other genocides, like Rwanda and, and uh, Cambodia. 
is the two big ones. I'm going to ask you in a moment, just to, to very briefly, just for one minute, to stand just in silence and in reflection of that event. Because it's, it, it's unparalleled in human history. <coughs> Hitler was the pharaoh of the 20th century, as far as the Jews were concerned. And he created murder on an industrial scale. So could you just for a moment, and I'm going to time this, could you for a moment just stand with us, please? And just in silent reflection, just think of the horror and the heartache of six million families. Okay, thank you. Just keep standing. If I was to ask us to stand as we are as a memorial for all the Jews that were slaughtered during the last World War, just for one minute, for every one of those six million men, women, and children, if you were to stand just for one minute, do you know how long you'd have to stand? Eleven and a half years. That's the scale of it, folks. Horrendous, isn't it? Eleven and a half years you'd have to stand. You may be seated. And so you can see in Egypt what an event. What death. But warning after warning after warning after warning. <coughs> Hitler's generals were warning him at the end, were defeated, were beaten, give up, no more deaths, but he wouldn't listen. When he was in his bunker in Berlin with Eva Veron, who was uh, Eva, forget, Eva Braun, Eva Braun. Eva Braun was his girlfriend, and in that bunker, they got married. The Russian soldiers were in the streets above them, looking for him to kill him, or at least capture him. So he married his mistress. And after he did that, which they had agreed to do, he poisoned her and shot himself to death and ordered those who were in the bunker to incinerate his body. Joseph Goebbels, his propagandist for all those years, him and his wife Magda and their six children were there, couldn't bear to be without his beloved Fuhrer. And so both of them, 
when their kids were sleeping in their beds, they put cyanide tablets and murdered their own children. Then outside, he blew her brains out, then he blew his brains out. And up above them, Germany was in ruins. Absolute ruins. Had been bombed to smithereens. Millions of Germans, both soldiers and civilians, died. And historians tell us that those who were in the bunker with him said that his, to his dying breath, he despised and he detested and he blamed the Jews for everything. His neck was so hard. But it cost his nation everything. In fact, after that, his nation was divided. It was divided into four initially, with the Soviet Union and America and Britain and France. And then it was divided into two with the Berlin Wall, the Soviets on one side and the free world on the other side. For years, for decades, was it maybe 30 years ago or something, the wall came down. In fact, East Germany has never truly fully recovered. The, the difference between East and West is quite a lot, actually, economically in every way. All because one man would not repent. His heart was hardened and hardened and hardened. And so let me just wind this up here quickly. <coughs> then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. <laughs> and then unbelievably he says, And bless me also. <coughs> now you would be mistaken if you thought that was genuine repentance. Uh-uh. No, it's not. He had kind of done this a little bit before, you know. A couple of times he said to Moses, uh, entreat the Lord for me. But then he quickly changed his mind because his heart was too hard. And his heart is still hard here, by the way. But he said, anyway, he says, uh, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. All those 80 years of slave labor is now being paid back. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. Ramesses was the study of light that they built as slaves. About 600,000 men on foot besides children. And you can assume besides women and children. So all together, then it says, and a mixed multitude went up with them also and flocks and herds. Who's the mixed multitude? Well, we don't know for sure. But maybe a lot of intermarrying with Egyptians and maybe a lot of other slaves who weren't Hebrews that the Egyptians had got to do their dirty work for them. Maybe they saw their chance of escape. And maybe, who knows, maybe even some Egyptians who had enough of Pharaoh maybe wanted to go out too when they got the chance. But it was a mixed multitude. Altogether, we're talking here two million people. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leaven, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. 
Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt, the great host of them. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is, the, this is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout all their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is, who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner, a hired servant, shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Remember, the, <laughs> the lamb was a type of Christ, and on the cross not one bone of his body was broken, that the scriptures may be fulfilled, it says. And the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and let them come near and keep it. And it shall be as a native, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and one for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. And so when it came time to hold the commemoration of the Passover, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then they had to be either Hebrews or at least circumcised if they weren't. So there was procedures to go through because not just anybody could do it. And when it comes time for our communion, this is what we say when it comes Sunday and we take our communion. We say, listen, this is for every born-again believer in Christ. And if you're not, please pass it by. This, these are not our rules. These are, these are Bible rules. All right. And so we will do that again just in a moment. And so here we are in this position now where the Passover has happened, the Exodus is just beginning. And one of the greatest events, one of the greatest miracles in the entire Bible is about to happen, the opening of the Red Sea. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And it's marvelous. It truly is marvelous. What a miracle of God it is. So we'll, we'll go back to that tonight. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.